Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long. For just $25. $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert to buy now. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house. And I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From UFOs to psychic powers and government conspiracies, history is riddled with unexplained events. You can turn back now or learn the stuff they don't want you to know. A production of iHeartRadio. Welcome back to the show. My name is Matt. My name is Noel. They call me Ben. We are joined, as always, with our super producer, Paul Mission Control Deccant. Most importantly, you are you, you are here, and that makes this Stuff They Don't Want You To Know. It's your favorite, or some of your favorite, Quentin Quarantino's back again. Uh, Today, we are exploring a very strange case. Let's start with the idea of missionary work. You've heard the phrase before, right? It's it's sometimes associated with these acts that encapsulate the utmost of altruism. And then sometimes there are cases that appear to be self-serving. And some cases, like the tragic case of John Chow in North Sentinel Island, seem to be inherently misinformed with terrible, horrific consequences. But in the world of missionary work, you may have also heard the story of one Rene Bach, who founded the organization Serving His Children, often abbreviated as SHC, in Uganda in 2009. You may be 
somewhat familiar with this last story at a headline level, but if you are like most of us, you have not heard the full extent of what happened here. And that is why today we are exploring the strange, tragic tale of Rene Bach's actions in the organization in Uganda, as well as some of the larger themes this story touches upon. And luckily, we are not doing it alone, are we? No, today we are joined by Rajiv Gala, a prolific freelance journalist and photographer. He's been published in multiple outlets. You've probably seen his work in The Guardian, Vice, Reuters, and much, much more. He, along with his team, Halima Gikandi and Malcolm Burnley, uh, Rajiv spent a year investigating this story. He interviewed over 100 people asking crucial, profound questions about the problems that arise when someone becomes what could be called a white savior. So, Rajiv, first things first, uh, welcome to the show, and can you please briefly describe the story that's going on here of SHC? Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. Um, yeah, so I, uh, I got to Uganda last January, and a few days after I got there, I heard about this case of an American woman who had pretended to be a doctor and who was now being accused of killing hundreds of children. And a few days later, a, an activist group called No Wait Saviors uh, helped file a court case against her in Uganda's uh, high court. And so I went along with them and I met a few of the people that had signed affidavits against Renee and they kind of set me off on this journey uh, that took us the next year to really get to the bottom of this whole story and figure out what was really going on with all these allegations. So I think some of the initial questions here uh, are, are going to be concerning your process, uh, which may be a little bit of a dry way to start. So in this, in this story, in The Missionary, which one thing that you all have done that's pretty captivating to me is that you're, it's a collaborative work of journalism. Uh, and it, it's still, I can only imagine, must, must be a huge undertaking. Uh, what, what led you and your colleagues, Halima and Malcolm, to take this approach to narrative, to storytelling and investigation? Yeah, well, pretty quickly when we got into the story, we realized it was going to be a lot up to interpretation. Um, I mean, this was such a polarizing case. I mean, we had one group on one hand that literally called itself No White Saviors. And then we have the accused Renee on the other. And both were telling widely different stories. Um, and when we got into it, the like actual documentation, the evidence was kind of sparse. And so what we had to deal with mostly was all these competing narratives and trying to stitch them together. And it just made the most sense instead of one person kind of trying to make sense of all these things. Why don't we kind of bring all those perspectives to the show? And so the three of us all come with our own personal experiences and our own take on just how this case unfolded and who's to blame and what, what really happened, what really went wrong. And instead of just picking one of those, we kind of tussle with each other uh, through the show and try to get those opinions out there. It's interesting. It's almost like a Rashomon type story where there's just like an unreliable narrator and you kind of have to, as the listener, make up your own mind as to what really happened. For example, even uh, this woman uh, in, in question, uh, Miss Bach, uh, she wrote a lot of these blogs where she wrote about herself in the first person as though she were the one, you know, doing the blood transfusions on these malnourished children and, and you know, putting in IVs. And obviously a big part of the story and the, and the hubbub here is that she has no medical 
medical experience. Uh, but she wrote about it from the first person and then later walked that back and was like, oh, I maybe was just being a little self-aggrandizing and chose to write it in that you know form, but it really was others. There were always nurses around that were, you know, counseling me and telling me what to do. But even that part, it's like, how do you, who do you believe? And it's just, it's fascinating, uh, that level, the psychology of it. And I was aware of White Savior as a movie trope more than anything, where it's like the idea of like dances with wolves, where the white guy comes in and saves all the, you know, the Native Americans from themselves or whatever. That is where I kind of heard about this. So the idea of it as like a genuine psychological complex, I guess, uh, is, is very fascinating to me. Can you speak a little bit about that um, and, and how you kind of started digging deeper into this idea of, of this almost being a pathological, you know, issue with, with certain people? Um, well, I, I would just say on that end, we actually didn't want to go down the pathological route for a very specific reason uh, in that because there wasn't a whole lot of evidence, we didn't want to start like armchair diagnosing people and we didn't want to kind of chalk this up to a singular like mental issue or anything like that, because what we saw and what we knew from our years of reporting out there was just that this was a systematic issue as much as it was about like one really extraordinary case. So we really did try to push all the the pathological stuff to the side, even though there is incredible scholarship about it. There's something called um, pathological altruism, where you go out of your way to help, even though you know it's hurting. Um, the per- people you're trying to help are even hurting yourself and that kind of stuff's incredible. But, um, we were really trying to try to stay on the track of understanding this bigger system because when you look at Renee's story, the first thing you realize is that there's this whole evangelical world in America that a lot of people, unless you're in it, like you don't see it. I mean, just like a quick example of that. I mean, the lawyer that she's got on the case is the same lawyer that represented, uh, Terry Chavo's parents. And that was incredible to me until I realized that there's all these connections in this evangelical world and like pretty much any story you pick up, you're going to kind of pull on all these other threads. I think that's an awesome um, point. I'm using awesome in the, uh, in the term that it means if you look up the word in the dictionary. Oh, we only speak in biblical tenses. (laughs) Oh, great. (laughs) (laughs) Fantastic. This, this is something I don't, I don't want to lose because I think for many people, unless you have traveled maybe outside of the U.S., you you may not, or unless you are yourself a practicing evangelical or in the missionary community, you're right. This is one of those things that is sort of an, an invisible culture uh, because it's so insular. And I think that's the word that gets used accurately quite often here. Uh, one thing that struck me in, in the story is that it is... Uh, it is considered completely legitimate, right, to be spiritually called to something rather than perhaps secularly qualified to do that thing. And w- with this, when we were looking at, or when I was, when I was digging into uh, some of the research here, I, I came up with a, a couple of immediate questions that I wanted to present to our audience Um Instead of me running through them, I think you would be much better suited to answer these, Rajiv. So, so the big accusations, right? The big rumors in Jinja were that this person was um, making the story about themselves, right? And that this person was doing um, doing the kind of medical operations or the kind of medical procedures that would require uh, formal training. 
is that correct? And and could you, when you're telling us about that, could you tell us a little bit about um, how much of that was rumor, how much of that was true? And uh, while I'm just laundry listing questions, I'm so sorry to do this, but I'm so curious about this. Uh, could you also tell us um, how people are able to practice medical procedures in this country without licensing or without training? Yeah. So let me take the last one first then. Um, so Uganda does have a pretty extensive system of laws to keep uh, NGOs in check and make sure that people that are qualified are the ones providing the services. But at the end of the day, it's also an enforcement issue. And these uh, these places where a lot of these NGOs are based are not the most well-resourced. And so it's pretty easy to slip through the cracks. Um, I mean, when we started this story, the things I was hearing made me, it made me feel like there was this this conspiracy that somehow the government or these big NGO groups had all conspired to allow this to happen, something like that. But when it came down to it, it was kind of like a more pedestrian answer. Like you got one guy in charge of a whole district with 900 registered NGOs. What's, I mean, what, what can he really do? And so it's, it's pretty easy to slip under the radar there. And it's one of those things that up until recently was pretty sensitive to, to talk about openly when a lot of the government budget is coming from foreign NGOs, that's not something you want to scare away. Uh, but the tide is changing now, and Ugandan government is taking a lot of steps to kind of cull a lot of these paper NGOs and make sure that everyone has their documentation and make sure everyone's doing everything above board. And it's going to be a slow process, but um, you know, things are changing there. Uh, as far as the other stuff, I mean, when I came in, the allegations were uh, out of the world. Um, let me tell you, like... Everything I was told about Renee was an image of this like megalomaniac, this crazy person. It was kind of like uh, Apocalypse Now. I felt like Martin Sheen going up the river up to meet Colonel Kurtz and just reading his files. And this like image loomed larger and larger in my mind every day. And when I read her blogs, you can see this trajectory where like 2009, she's like 19 years old. She like gets to Uganda and she's got all this ambition and this good intention to do something for what she sees as a very vulnerable, needy place. And it starts off well enough. I mean, she gets all these kids to her house to feed them lunch every day. Like a thousand kids are lining up with bowls and they get beans and rice. Um, and it was great for a while. Um, she was like just a popular woman in the community. And then she starts noticing all these mothers bringing her children that are just very sick. There's nowhere else to take them, or at least that's what she thinks. Um, she sees the government hospitals. She sees how understaffed they are. And she says, well, then let me try to jump in and help out. And it's a mission creep where no one tells you no, and there's not this really robust system of regulations to keep you from overstepping your bounds. And one day you're like, I don't know, trying to place an IV line. And then a few years down the road, you have an entire ICU built into your house. And in a culture of missionaries, especially in Jinja, where you're rewarded for being ambitious, for taking all this extra responsibility, for going above and beyond and really putting others before yourself or making it seem like that, it was almost inevitable like that something like this could happen. And when I asked a uh, Ugandan NGO forum 
person. Her name is Margaret. She works at the NGO forum in Jinja, and she oversees all the NGOs there. Uh, and when I asked her about this whole case and like kind of ran her through the allegations, I was like, does this surprise you? And she says, absolutely not. Like, it's probably happening again somewhere out here. Like, we just can't know. And there's so much going on. Which, yeah, I guess goes back to the whole thing about this being a systematic issue more than anything else. I want to I wanna speak up just briefly for the missionaries here just in general because I did I grew up in a, in a Christian church uh for for a long time and you know I've gone a bit of a different way a while ago and up to this point but for for a for a time there the way at least I was exposed to missionary work it was truly an altruistic thing uh, where a community somewhere across the world can send their funds their monies that they collect generally on Sundays when I was a part of it and then, you know, send it somewhere else so that help can be provided, whether it's in building infrastructure or maybe even feeding somebody. Um, I can totally see how maybe that the underlying reasoning to do something like that, uh, even if it is to spread perhaps your religion, uh, if the underlying reason is to help others, it is a tremendously helpful and wonderful thing, or at least, you know, on paper, right? I can totally also see how if you're going to create a non-governmental organization and take it to the links, I guess perhaps that Renee ended up taking her organization, I can see how it could become problematic. Um, and just as everything you've said there, uh, Rajiv, um, I, I, what did you uncover about what was actually happening in those facilities that she was running? Was it her? Was it a team of people that were attempting to perform things like giving a child an IV or an injection of some medication or another? Or was it just her? I mean, so that's kind of where this whole case got gets tricky. Because at the end of the day, we don't have access to medical documents from it. We don't have access to a lot of the evidence that would be required to say one way or another what happened. So what we did was we picked a few cases that seemed to really tell a story about this NGO and really dove deep on those. One of the cases was a girl named Patricia who came into the facility. Uh, she was a, an infant uh, and her body was swollen. She was malnourished and had a lot of other complications going on. And when she was brought to serving his children, it was determined that she needed a blood transfusion. A doctor over the phone told Renee that this girl needed a blood transfusion. And so Renee and one of the nurses there went out and got blood for Patricia. When it came back, though, and when it was put into Patricia and the transfusion began, it, they realized that the blood was mismatched and Patricia started swelling up. And so... At that point, an American nurse was called in. The nurse made the call to send the child to a private hospital in Kampala, the capital of Uganda. And Patricia stayed there for a week until she stabilized. At that point, she was brought back to serving as children and developed a flesh-eating bacteria on her face that was just growing and growing and almost killed her. And then it came out that the hospital in Kampala had actually diagnosed the flesh-eating bacteria. And so then the question became, why was Patricia discharged? And why did she go back to this unlicensed facility without proper medical professionals to take care of these really highly sensitive cases? And it's really 
a lot of stuff that we found was kind of like that, where it was just this gradual accumulation of mistakes of someone who did not have the expertise needed to manage the situation stepping in to do so. And that led to pretty horrifying consequences. And to this day, Patricia lives with a scar on her face. And there, there are a lot of complications that can go along with this kind of malnourishment. I was reading a piece on NPR about it, and uh, oftentimes they're so sensitive where you are – oftentimes they're better left alone than trying to intervene so rapidly because you can absolutely cause a heart attack or any other number of uh, side effects, I guess, from just how sensitive and fragile their bodies have become, not to mention many are living with HIV, um, other conditions that just exacerbate the whole thing. Uh, and so that's particularly, I think, why this is extra disturbing, the thought of someone with no medical training thinking they can just go in and, and do all this stuff. Yeah, and I think like this is like a kind of a really simple test that a lot of people bring up with this case and a lot of mission work abroad. Like just if you wouldn't do it in your own neighborhood, would you be able to do it abroad? A lot of the work that these volunteerists are doing, um, these volunteer humanitarians or missionaries are doing there, they're kind of organizing pills in a pharmacy or they're building walls in an orphanage or they're playing with kids. I mean, they're not highly technical things and they're not sending highly technically qualified people. And so the question then becomes, wouldn't it benefit the community there to just hire locals? Like, wouldn't it make more sense to build up the local capacity instead of sending kids from America out there? And so at that point, you start to see these mission trips less concerned about the impact that they're making on the ground versus what they're doing for the people actually going abroad. They're selling you an experience to go reconnect with your faith and put your faith into action. And I think a lot of people really have great experiences and have a different outlook on life after that. Um, and when they're managed well, they can be really great experiences on both sides of it. Unfortunately, when the profit motive comes in and when really highly technical issues start to crop up in these things, that's when we need to be careful about how to proceed. You know, I 100% agree with that point. We've done some previous work on NGOs. I think, I, I think for many people, it's easy to hear the phrase NGO, especially here in the West, and think, oh, you know, like, Captain Planet, the environment, helping people, that kind of stuff, right? Um, but I, 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 I profoundly appreciate you bringing up some of the ways in which NGOs can aid and abet uh, systemic inequality in these in these situations. One one great example would be uh, clothing drives, right? Donate clothing to a place, and then the way that that is dispersed or even sold to people in another country uh, is, is a is a death knell for the local textile industry. Do you um, find in in at least th this situation here? Do you feel like it would be fair to say that uh, serving his children at least, or at least Renee Bach's original work when she was just feeding the kids, would you, would you be, do you think it's fair to say that that was a net benefit and that this accumulation of mistakes or like, did it start, I guess my direct question is, Rajiv, did it start off already hurting more than it was helping? Speaking specifically about a feeding program. I think there's a lot of differing opinions 
in that whole world about whether that actually does good for a community or whether it fosters sort of dependency without building anything there. Um, kind of the whole like give a man a fish argument. It's easy to see that what she was doing at that point in her career was far less dangerous than what she ended up doing. I think a lot of people go over there with this grand ambition of fixing these huge problems. And I think we all remember when we were 19, 20, and like thought we could fix a lot of it. But the difference is we didn't have money or a structure to do it with. And when you are given those things and pretty much carte blanche in a foreign country, things can go off the rails. Um, and so that's when oversight kind of comes into play. I don't want to say things started off great or anything like that. Cause like at the end of the day, I think there's something to be said for the mentality that you have when you come in. And the mentality that a lot of these people have is one of pride and believing that you can accomplish more than you are able to. And like there's research um, that we cited in the show, a professor in Honduras had spent a long time working with uh, mission groups and trying to understand the impact that these short-term missions have on local communities and what he saw was that people that are less qualified tend to have more impactful personal experiences than people who were qualified. Because if you knew what was going on, you knew you weren't helping at all. And you knew it was going to be incredibly difficult to change the condition of people's lives. But if you didn't know what you were talking about, then you thought you were doing the Lord's work out there. Sort of a Dunning-Kruger? Oh, yeah. That's the one. Oh, maybe. wow. <laughs> or maybe delusions of grandeur. I mean, there's certainly some folks in, in the discussion around this that I've heard refer to this woman as being arrogant or like, you know, who does she think she is to believe that she can do these things that she clearly isn't qualified to do. And obviously the end result was loss of life and whether or not that balances out with any positive impact that, that she may have done or best intentions gone wrong or what have you. You still can't deny that there's some kind of blind... I don't know, pride or, or self-delusion involved in, in just charging into this kind of situation headlong without maybe a proper plan to do it correctly. A couple of years ago, when I was uh, reporting in South Sudan, I was covering what ended up being a, uh, a government assault on a town in northern South Sudan. Uh, a number of soldiers went and massacred a an ethnic community that they'd had a longstanding, um, let's say bad relationship with. So yeah, when I got there, this whole town was, it, it was a ghost town and there were tens of thousands of people that had taken refuge at the UN camp or at the Red Cross facility or at the Catholic compound in the middle of town. And when I went to the Catholic compound, I found an Indian nun there who had been in South Sudan for 30 years. And she took me in and for weeks, I was by her side as she like handled the fallout of this horrific attack in her town. And for the first time, I felt like I'd seen what a missionary or really anyone was capable of doing when they had their head in the right place and their heart in the right place. I mean, she'd built schools, hospitals, clinics. She was a teacher at the college. She was teaching nurses. Um, she had built the biggest... Uh, children's hospital in the in the in that state, and from the outside, she was just this unimpeachable figure of 
righteousness. And I don't use that word lightly or uh, sarcastically. I mean, she was just like, she was doing the thing. Um, and it made me want to go follow in her footsteps. And it was just like a very captivating, inspiring thing to see. But every night when we would kind of go back to her place and eat dinner, she would confess and say that she didn't know what her purpose was. She didn't feel like she was making any impact. Um, she didn't know where all of this led. But the next morning, she would be up before I was making breakfast and getting out to hit the road and get to work. And I think what I saw there was that it's a wonderful thing to have a good heart, a wonderful thing to have good intentions about something. But what makes doing the right thing difficult is that you never know if you are doing the right thing. And the only way to guard against crossing that line is to have humility and self-doubt. And I found that the people who are often doing the right thing in this world are also tearing themselves to pieces trying to answer the question of if they are doing the right thing. That's a really beautiful way of looking at it. And it's true. I mean, it is kind of all constant moral quandary. And just, I always tell like my daughter, you know, self-awareness is like one of the most important skills, I guess, or traits that you can have. Because without that, you're kind of just adrift. You know, you can't really see yourself or how other people see you or how will you even know? How can you like self-correct or course correct if you get, you know, on the wrong path? So that's it's an incredible story. And we'll return to explore the story of missionary in further depth after a word from our sponsor. Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long. For just $25. $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house. And I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Hold up. 
Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant, just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. And we're back. So, Serving His Children was founded in 2009 in the States and then was um, made official in Uganda in 2010. What it started out as was a, an outreach and feeding program. Um, so Renee got a house in this pretty rough neighborhood outside Jinja in Uganda, which is a pretty popular tourist town. Um, a lot of, lot of expats out there doing like rafting and camping and four wheeling and stuff. And it's also become this kind of missionary Mecca, um, that's really popular because it's an easy place to live. Weather's great all year round and just really friendly to outsiders. So Renee set up shop there in a, in this rough neighborhood called Masese. She rented a house there and twice a week she would start feeding the kids beans and rice. And then she noticed all these other problems underneath that, where these mothers were coming to her with really sick children that needed help. And so she started taking on some of these kids and letting them stay over at the house, letting them get healthy and kind of keeping a close eye on them. Uh, And slowly that led into a more active role of getting kids to hospitals, um, getting them blood, medicine, getting them whatever they needed. And then around 2010, 2011, it became a more in-house thing where they were trying to do inpatient procedures and really focus on this issue of malnutrition. But the thing is, when you're malnourished, you also pick up a load of other diseases. And so you have all these severe complications. And you need to have the highest like training and qualifications to manage these really sensitive kids. And at that point, like, it's difficult to say when things went off the rails, but like at that point you can say like, oh, I think we're, we're off now. Um, <laughs> so uh, that's a crucial part in the timeline though, Rajiv, like that, that part, uh, that area, 2010, 2011, I believe that's when we see the involvement of one Jacqueline Kramlich. Is that mm-hmm. correct? Uh, Jackie yeah. Kramlich. Yeah. Yeah. Jackie Kramlich. Uh, Jackie Kramlich is uh, play, plays a, a pivotal part, I guess, in the way that the U.S. and the West sees the narrative unfold. Could could you tell us a little bit about Kramlich's background and then how that led to Kelsey Nielsen? And you mentioned this earlier, and I'm sure it's an organization, or it's at least a series of terms that some of our fellow listeners clocked, no white saviors. So how how does Kramlich's involvement lead to Kelsey lead to this? I got to tell you, um, our podcast team group chat is the image of Charlie in the mailroom with all the red strings pointing at different photos and everything. <laughs> um, and I've never oh. been able to like put that in coherent words. And it's been, yeah, it's so I'll give it a shot here. Um, all right. Jackie Kramlich 
got her nursing degree in America and was qualified to be a nurse. But when she got to Uganda, Renee's organization told her that she did not need to register for a medical license in Uganda. So the whole time Jackie was there, she was operating without a nursing license in Uganda. Nevertheless, uh, her expertise was rarely called on. And there's a few anecdotes uh, that she tells where there would be a really sick kid and Renee would be like scrambling to figure out what was going wrong. And instead of asking Jackie what was going on, she would call a friend in America to Google it or something like that. And it's that kind of unclear chain of command or that lack of delegation that was kind of a first red flag for Jackie. But what really did it for Jackie was that case of Patricia, where she saw over and over again, all these mistakes kind of build up and lead to this child be scarred for life for what Jackie says was no good reason. Like just this child should not have been scarred at all. Shortly after Patricia was discharged from serving as children, Jackie resigned and uh, went to go work with another organization in Jinja. Around this time, a woman named Kelsey Nielsen, who is uh, an American from Philadelphia, came to Jinja to start her own NGO for family reunification, which I guess this is the other, this is the red string pointing outwards. Uh, but in Jinja, there's a whole industry of child adoptions that is pretty corrupt. And I mean, in the most cynical phrasing, you can pay 50 grand and get a lawyer to approve it an adoption for a kid. And then you are a brand new parent. Uh, and a lot of the families that go through this process don't know necessarily what they're getting into. They think it's just like for a year or two and then the child will come back. But then they realize that they've signed away their, their, their son or daughter for forever. So it's a really tragic thing. And what Kelsey's organization tried to do was provide these families with resources to be able to keep their families together rather than um, being offered money and having these kids leave. And at that time, Renee and a few other missionaries were really like just top of their game. They were the Mother Teresas of Jinja. They were just, they set the standard for what a missionary was, for how much self-sacrifice like it, the work entails. And Kelsey really looked up to them. But at some point, all these contradictions in Jinja of people saying that they were doing good for the community, but then the community not getting any better, they kind of came to a head and Kelsey decided she needed to speak out. So she teamed up with a former employee of hers, a, a Ugandan social worker named Olivia Alasso. And the two of them created an organization uh, called No White Saviors which is famous for its Instagram page. Uh, it's fiery Instagram page, um, which has a couple hundred thousand followers now. Uh, when I met them, uh, it was like 10, 15,000. Um, so it has been incredible to see how much traction they've gotten um, over the last year. There's another Instagram page called Barbie Savior, uh, which if you've seen it is a collection of photos of a Barbie doll dressed up as a volunteer tourist, a missionary, uh, kind of traipsing around Africa, finding herself and following her calling. And it's this like really sarcastic thing where she's picking up black babies and being like, oh my God, like I'm in love with this place. And she gets like a tattoo of Africa on her chest and everything. And that account was actually started by Jackie Kramlick. Part of the impetus for this account, which has 150,000 followers now, was Renee. And Jackie says that one of the first photos they did of Barbie getting on a plane and waving goodbye to her family is a replica of the photo that Renee put up on her blog 
of the same thing. And so that was kind of our window into seeing this Jinja community as almost just like high school drama. And I don't want to minimize the, the trauma of the victims in uh, this whole situation by saying, oh, it was just like a mean girls fight. But I mean, there's a big part of the story that is just this pressure cooker of a town with a bunch of young missionaries that are all trying to com- all trying to save the world and they're at each other's throats the whole time. And it's interesting because Kelsey looked at the superstars, the rock stars of Jinja, like Katie Davis and Renee Bach as the mean girls of Jinja, that they were these popular girls that everyone aspired to be. And you had to be smart and pretty to get into their group. Uh, But when Renee talks about how the Jinja community turned on her, and tried to demolish her entire career and ruin her reputation, she calls Kelsey and them the mean girls. Uh, And so it kind of gets into this back and forth where, I mean, we got lost in it. Um, There's all these rumors floating around. And at some point, we just have to divorce ourselves and get back to the real story, which are the the families that went through serving as children. Um, But it gave us a huge insight into... What happens when you go to church on Sunday, put money in the basket, and it goes off to Jinja? And uh, we're all kind of gossiping at uh, at the cafe there, uh, paying for lattes uh, with your aunt's money. And with that, we're going to take a quick break and hear a word from our sponsor. Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long for just $25. $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all in one solution for hiring high quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire part time or full time. You name the position warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house. And I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. 
Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on do not disturb, tuning out all the constant just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. And we're back. Let's jump to the real impact because there you guys did some some reporting on the actual quantitative numbers of people who you know went through the system there went you know lived there for a while or retreated there who were either injured or did not make it can you talk to us a little bit about the the actual impact that was had on far too many people there okay so Serving His Children's inpatient program started in 2010. And in 2015, the Ugandan government stepped in to shut Serving His Children down because they did not have a medical license. Um, The one that they had had expired. So if you look at the numbers that Serving His Children provides, um, between 2010 and 2015, 105 children passed away uh, while 835 children went home happy and healthy. And you can look at those numbers and read them in a way that says, I mean, look, I mean, they got a 14% mortality rate. That's like not bad considering that the government standard is 20 to 25%. Like they were doing better than the best government hospitals. But then you got to remember, these are serving as children's own numbers, not corroborated elsewhere. And at the end of the day, for four of the five years of those statistics, serving his children was an unlicensed medical facility. It was an illegal facility in Uganda. At that point, you have to ask yourself, like, is one child's death at a facility like this too many? And that's, I guess, like, what when it comes down to it, like, that's the interpretive part of this. And some people are willing to swallow those numbers and say, these kids would have died no matter what, and at least someone's trying to help them. And in fact, some Ugandan doctors we spoke with told us that. But I think it takes education and awareness of cases like this to make people think twice about following in these footsteps. One thing that David Gibbs, who helps represent the family here in the States, the the Bach family here in the States, one thing he says is that the campaign that No White Saviors is trying to put out against Renee, against all these other white saviors and missionaries, what he's afraid of is it will create a chilling effect on people that want to go out into the world and help their fellow person. And that's, that's his fear that someone with good intentions, when they see things like this will be too afraid to go out and help. But there's a part of me that thinks maybe that is what's needed. Maybe like that's how you bring self-awareness into the situation and bring humility into the situation is by holding to account people that 
have taken advantage of certain situations or slipped through the cracks and hurt more than they helped. And, and that's, that's the point, you know, um, perceived eloquence aside, you know, there are larger links, everything, nothing, nothing is created in isolation, right? Everything exists in context and is in some way an end result of all the actions preceding it. And one thing that I think is incredibly pertinent here in multiple situations uh, abroad and in the U.S. today is the concept of knowing one's rights that you hit upon excellently. In this case, um, one thing that seems to be a damning allegation is the lack of informed consent, which we've talked about previously on this show. Uh, you will have, uh, I believe there were some folks on the SHC side who said, well, paperwork aside, legal or illegal status aside, we had people sign forms that acknowledged, you know, that this is not that very carefully acknowledged the type of care it was and it was not. And these forms that the, like, I, I understand that some people were illiterate when they were asked to sign these forms. Uh, and then I further understand that these forms were in English, which not necessarily everybody in the country or at that center specifically could read. Is that correct? Yeah. So I don't know the ins and outs of Ugandan law, but from what the, um, the, the lawyer on the side of the plaintiffs says, if a person who does not speak English or read English signs one of these documents, it has to be accompanied by a proof that it was interpreted or translated for um, the signee. Uh, and those documents were not provided, which have the, which like threatened to invalidate them. And a big part of this case is this question of whether Renee impersonated a doctor. There's allegations that she wore a lab coat or a stethoscope. I mean, we have photos of her with a stethoscope, but not the lab coat. And then there's allegations that like she told people she was a doctor or did not refuse when people called her a doctor. And I think that is part of the same discussion where you go into these rural communities that their engagements with white folks for the most part are people with NGOs and people from these big aid groups. When you see a white person walk into one of these communities and they're asking for children with malnutrition and they're got a clipboard in their hands and a stethoscope around their neck, you're going to think that they have some medical qualifications. Um, and a lot of the former employees kind of say this as well, that it took them years before they realized Renee wasn't a qualified doctor. I think a lot of what No White Saviors is getting at as well is that white people in these rear, in these um, vulnerable places kind of get away with a lot just by the color of their skin. And like their privilege means so much more in these places than it does even in America. Even I could like walk into one of these places and with an American accent and just kind of people would respect me and like give me a certain amount of uh, respect and trust that is not afforded to Ugandans. And so part of it is people not knowing their rights and part of it is outsiders not fully aware of the privilege that they carry into these communities. That's really something. I mean, that's 
something I think we all need to think about and internalize quite a lot. You know, we're we're in a moment in history where, Rajiv, I think there's a tremendous amount of goodwill going around right now. Um, there's a lot of learning, and no matter how elementary the learning is, it there's a lot of learning that's happening. I wonder if there, you know, in your travels to Uganda, to Sudan, where, wherever perhaps you've traveled if for your work, if you've found organizations or ways to maybe, maybe it's as simple as a monetary uh, way of supporting a group or somebody who's doing something good somewhere that people listening and us, that we could help without interfering. Do you, do you think there's anything out there that exists like that? I think before anything else, it's just about, am I the right person to go out and do that thing? And I think learning that for myself is just like something that took me a long time to even like begin to, to start understanding. I mean, when I went to South Sudan, I was 19, got off the plane, didn't know anybody there and was like, I'm going to write stories about this place uh, that I read about in books. Learned pretty quickly that maybe I'm not the person for it. And you know, it's a tricky thing to kind of position yourself and say like where you belong and what you should do, what you shouldn't do. But where I kind of land after doing this whole year long investigation is I tend to err on the side of inaction now. I feel you, man. I mean, it's like you get so fed up and you just feel kind of stymied and it's like, why bother? That's how I feel about the government and just like voting and stuff. I mean, and it's not good, especially when you see so many people mobilizing and getting out and, you know, trying to at least make a difference. Like I, my ex-wife uh, had had me and my daughter and, and her friend and her, their son uh, go out and do this protest in, in their, our neighborhood. And it's a predominantly black neighborhood. And I was sort of like, oh, this is preaching to the choir. This is so, I was so cynical about it. And then we went out. And it was just people honking the horn and just seeing that we gave a shit enough to like, you know, stand there on the curb with signs. I'm not saying that's like some grand gesture, but it really opened my eyes to the fact that even just showing people that you care is meaningful, more meaningful than you think. I think sometimes, you know, it's easy to get swept up in the nihilism of it all uh, and, and to forget that, like, you know, people do see you when you see them. And that's important not to lose sight of, I think. I don't know. I think to refine my point, then, I guess. I would caution against people that want to start their own thing without seeing what other people are up to first. Because there's people out there doing it, right? I mean, like one great example in Jinja itself, right? When Renee came in to start her organization, there was another white missionary woman named Elizabeth who had been a former uh, real estate broker in California. Uh, and then one day heard her calling to Africa and ended up in Uganda. Um, she also wanted to tackle malnutrition. But rather than starting her own program, building her own facility, anything like that, she went to the government hospital and asked them, what do you need? And ended up building a malnutrition ward for them where she would just keep it stocked with supplies and help administer the, just the, the logistical and administrative aspects of it, right? She knew the limits of her expertise and put everything she knew into action um, with an organization that was already set up to tackle the problem that she wanted to tackle. This brings up something that got, that uh, I think got skipped over a little bit at the beginning uh, that I wanted to get in here, uh, which is the idea of 
what what is helping versus hurting, there's also wrapped up in that inherently the question of what is centering, right? Psychologically, we're all programmed to think of ourselves as the protagonist of our own story, right? Uh, and with this, you know, it's an ongoing problem for anyone doing international research uh, that someone comes in and they say, well, you know, I went to school for this. Uh, and I know, like, I know a little bit of one native language. Let me tell you how to handle this, right? And it's wrapped up in this, but we also see that in the protest here in um, the U.S., right? You know, there have been people with, I'm sure, the best of intentions, right, who are, who are saying, you know, I want to express solidarity by starting my organization that will, uh, that will you know, make me feel good about doing the right thing, right? And and perhaps back up my performative social media. Uh, but even in, in function, these kinds of organizations can be othering and they can also uh, divert funding that was going to, you know, like the government hospital that already really needed that uh, maternity ward that you're mentioning that Elizabeth created. And I think that's a, I think that's a powerful thing. I'm, I know it's a lot to ask, uh, and, and I hope it doesn't sound like, you know, we're heaping opprobrium on people who do, as you said, probably have the best intentions, but is, is that what you would recommend? Would you recommend for someone who wants to help to, what would be a good way to say this? Would it be more like invest and amplify rather than try to start a new thing? I, I'm not I mean, sure the right phrase. My thing is just, take a minute, you know, like, I'm not saying like, sit down forever, but like, just take a minute, um, do a bit of research and see who's doing it out there. I mean, I had a moment when, after I was with the nun in South Sudan, where I wanted to be a missionary, where I wanted to like do the thing. And my plan was just to go move back to South Sudan and live with her and just like learn the ropes there. And I don't know. I think there's a lot of value in just going to a place without an agenda necessarily, and then just kind of soaking it in. Because a lot of the people that go out to these places, I mean, part of the reason you're going out there is to satisfy the sense of adventure of being in a foreign place. I mean, I'm guilty of that as much as any other foreign correspondent, I think. I don't think there's harm in just going to a place to be there and learn about what's going on before you decide to do anything because nine times out of 10, whatever problem you're trying to solve, there's someone already out there doing it and they could use your help. I think that's tremendously well said. We, we typically, when we explore some of these stories, at least on our show, we, we try to go toward the future, which I think you have done very well. And then we also try to explore current events. We mentioned a couple of times a lawsuit for anyone in the audience who's wondering um, as far as I understand, Rajiv, that lawsuit has not reached a conclusion. Is that correct? So, yeah, just to um, kind of fill in the blanks on the lawsuit. In January of 2019, two mothers who claimed that their children passed away after being treated at serving his children took Renee to court. Um, they filed a civil suit against her in uh, the Jinja High Court and are currently awaiting the outcome of a mediation process to try to settle something out of court. And if that doesn't happen, then it'll return to the public forum. So since 
March, I think, um, recently the Ugandan government kind of shut down all those processes with uh, COVID precautions. And so everything's kind of frozen for now. But it's a difficult thing to like figure out what justice looks like necessarily in all these situations. Because on one end, there's an argument that these mothers could just settle out of court, get a couple thousand dollars, go home. And I don't know, just that's a lot of money out there, right? And then the other argument is like, no, they got to fight this thing and they got to like prove something. And um, there's justice to be won here for everybody. But I think it's a lot to ask as well of anyone. You know, this is a tremendously heavy thing to think about and talk about and subject to make a show about. But I would just say um, thank you to you and your team for making it, to making all of us aware of what's going on there, or at least better aware. If you'd like to learn more about this case and everything that happened at Serving His Children and the story of Renee Bach and the ongoing lawsuits and, and everything involved, we highly recommend you go and check out the podcast, The Missionary, which is hosted by our guests today, Rajiv Gala, as well as his team members, Halima Gikandi and Malcolm Burnley. Uh, again, can't recommend it enough. The podcast is called The Missionary. Yeah, Rajiv, thank you for coming on air with us today. Uh, because of, you travel so widely, uh, I, I can only imagine it must also be a little bit odd to be in one place for an extended amount of time. So thank you for spending this time with us. Uh, we want, as Matt said, we want everybody to check out this show. It's ongoing as we record this, uh, but uh, we ha there are multiple episodes out there. Uh, we do highly recommend that you dive in. This is top-notch journalism. Uh, these are, and this is not not blowing smoke here. It's weird, Rajiv, because I can see you on the call, but I'm not. Uh, we're, we're not saying this because you're here. This is very well researched. It's captivating. It's more than worth your time. Uh, and we want to hear what you think about the topics we've addressed here in GOs. We want to hear uh, what you think about the ideas that we've explored regarding missionary work and the ideas regarding Renee Bach. Uh, Rajiv, for people who would like to learn more about you and the missionary and your work outside of the missionary, uh, where's a place they can find you or learn more about you on, on the big, uh, creepy big brother we call the Internet? Uh, well, my portfolio website is rajivgola.com and uh, my Twitter handle is rajivgola where you can uh, find me tweeting about NASCAR most of the time. <laughs> but hey, Noel, I, uh, speaking of uh, speaking of the internet, I hear our show's on there too. Is yeah, that yeah, we're, we're around. Uh, you can find us on the usual social media spots like Facebook and Instagram and all that. We're either uh, Conspiracy Stuff or Conspiracy Stuff Show on all the usual suspects. Um, and then you can also find us as individual human people. Uh, I am on Instagram exclusively at HowNowNoelBrown. I am at Ben Bullen HSW on Twitter. You can find Rajiv and I both on there. Uh, and I am in a burst of creativity calling myself at Ben Bullen on Instagram. 
And if you don't want to use social media, you can always give us a phone call. Our number is one eight three three stdwytk You can leave us a message. You get three minutes, talk about this episode, any other episode, or another one you'd like us to cover. Really, we just, we'd love to hear from you, so please give us a call. But if none of that quite bags your badgers, we have one way you can always get in touch with us. You don't have to just... Uh, you know, meet me at a crossroads at midnight or save a name into a dark mirror. You can send us an email 24 hours a day, seven days a week, how many ever days in a year there are. You can reach us directly. We are conspiracy at iHeartRadio.com. Stuff They Don't Want You to Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long. For just $25. $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house. And I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Attention, true crime enthusiast. Searching for a way to unwind after diving deep into the mysteries that keep you up at night? Look no further. Introducing Lazarus Naturals, your trusted companion for CBD relief. With a commitment to transparency, Lazarus Naturals oversees every step from farm to doorstep, ensuring purity and quality you can trust. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today and discover how CBD can help you decompress and recharge for your next investigation. That's LazarusNaturals.com. Lazarus Naturals, your partner in unraveling the mysteries of true crime. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. 